Hi, thank you for tuning in to the Finding Harmony podcast with me, your host, Harmony Slater. Hi, welcome to the Finding Harmony podcast. I am so happy you're here and I'm so excited to tell you about my Ancient Breathing course, Ancient Breathing 2.0. It opens today and registration closes in one week. It closes on October 1st on Friday. So you have this whole week to sign up and I would really encourage you to do so if you at all have an interest in learning anything about going deeper into the pranayama practices and also studying the text, the Hatha Pratapika. Um, Inside my course, you will learn Sanskrit mantras. You're going to learn the foundations for the pranayama practice. We go over bandhas in depth, as well as Ayurveda and the relationship that each pranayama practice has to the Ayurvedic doshas. Um, We also talk about the subtle energy system and the chakras and the movement of subtle energy through the nadis, those energy channels in our body. And we learn the eight traditional practices as taught in the Hatha Pratipika, along with the six kriyas, the shat kriyas. It's an incredibly Um, expansive course and I just know you're going to love it you're going to learn so much Um, I've had such great feedback one of my students from the last time I offered this course said since we started I've lost one pound a week I had skin rashes they're almost gone the pain in my right shoulder has completely vanished and that said the pranayama practice had everything to do with it so that's one Um, testimonial about the pranayama course and taking on a regular pranayama practice, some of the benefits that it can have. Um, There's so many more wonderful benefits. Uh, People have loved the chanting. They've loved doing the kriyas and the preps, as well as taking on a daily regular breathing practice and getting weekly live classes from me in addition to all of the videos um, that are within the teaching library. So you will also get a personal practice from me when you sign up. Uh, In the first few days, I'm offering some bonuses, and you're also going to have two bonus or modules. One is on mudras, and one is on the more advanced practices of pranayama and uh, the pranayama practice taught by Sri K. Patabi Joyce, which is quite a bit different than the ones found in the Hatha Pratipika. I learned those practices from my teacher, Sri Opi Tiwari, and I am here to share them with you. So when you sign up early, you'll get the mudras and advanced practices as well as the Ashtanga Yoga lineage pranayama practices. I can't wait to see you inside the course. Don't delay. Make sure you register before October 1st. After that, I'm closing the doors and you will have to wait until next year. And I don't know when I will offer it again next year. So uh, take this opportunity to jump in. And from today's podcast, you're going to hear from my good friend, Jeff McKenzie. And we talk a lot about uh, the emphasis on breathing practices and meditation as you age in the practice itself, how your interests naturally tend to shift away from the more athletic, aerobic asanas into the more subtle realms of the yoga practice 
practice, which includes pranayama and includes uh, meditative practices as well. Um, you're going to love Jeff. He's hilarious. He is an adopted Canadian. Um, he's a citizen of the world and has traveled all over. We talk about what is identity. We talk about class bending and his knee injury, which he has had to learn how to adapt the practice to care for and accommodate his knee injury. We talk about hamstring injuries and how to attend to them within the practice and outside of the practice and his passion for motorcycling. He uh, arranged an entire fundraiser, an across-Canada motorcycle trip to raise money for Odinati, um, the charity organization in Mysore, India. So uh, we have so many wonderful topics. It's a very expansive podcast. I'm sure you're going to love it, including his new foray into coaching and the Samurai Brotherhood, the importance of connecting to community and Dinacharya taking up the natural Ayurvedic routine and practices and integrating them into your day. So without further delay, uh, here is Jeff McKenzie. And don't forget, Ancient Breathing 2.0, you can find the link in the show notes and on my website. Warning. The following program contains scenes with coarse language and nudity. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, welcome to the Finding Harmony podcast. I'm your host, Harmony Slater, and I am here with Russell Case. And we have yet another very special Canadian episode for you today. <laughs> yes, because we're here with my old friend, Jeff McKenzie. How are you doing, Jeff? Oh, really good. Thanks. Great to be here with you guys. You feeling, are feeling very special. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. You're very, very special because Canada has officially adopted you, correct? Indeed. Yeah, about four years ago now, officially. <clears throat> yeah. So I, got, I got two passports and everything. That's Good amazing. God. You know, I'm, when I'm listening to you, it's, it's, I'm, I hear someone like that's more from New Zealand or Australia, but because it doesn't even really sound Canadian, but you're certainly, I, I, my notes here say that you were like raised in Liverpool, and, but you don't sound like that at all. I uh, know. So my parents were born in Liverpool. And they, they grew up there. I was born just outside of Liverpool, closer to Manchester. And then eventually, we shortly after that, we moved to East Anglia, kind of central eastern England, um, where there's, unless you live out in the sticks, there's no real accent to speak of. Really? Uh -huh. At least that I can tell and see. Um, and then, you know, however I've ended up today is kind of as a result really of, you know, those travels that I started taking at around about 18 years old. It all started actually when I went to, um, when I went to Chamonix in France the first time for my first winter season away. And my roommates were two Australians, um, two Americans, and uh, another English guy, but who'd moved to California when he was 16. And I was like stuck in the midst of that. Six of us living together, five of us living together in a, in a studio apartment in a, in a ski town ghetto. <laughs> wow. Um, and it all just rubbed off. Uh, How was, long were you there for? Um, that first trip was five months. Mm -hmm. And then I'd go back. Yeah, every winter we'd, I, would, I would return. I did that about four years in a row from anywhere between yeah, five months to I think three months was the shortest season I did. 
It's interesting. You can really, you can hear like that certain words that you say that come from a particular culture that you, that you lived in at one point. And it's, it's a kind of kaleidoscope. Uh, I've, I think people have actually said that about, about me as well at points that, that they're, they can't quite place where I'm from. And so people normally just say, Oh, you, you must be from Canada. <laughs> totally dude. Eh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, my take on it was always that, cause I've, I've been explaining myself in the, like in about this, like since I was 19, basically since I, first, I came back from that first trip. Um, actually the other point to mention was my best buddy at the time, the guy who I snowboarded with most day in day out was a Kiwi. Mm. Yeah. So that was in the mix as well. Um, <clears throat> and that rubbed off a lot. Um, but yeah, the, the way I kind of looked at it was, yeah, if you're around people and you want to be understood, you start using the slang that you're hearing. Right. And mm-hmm. you start speaking in the way that you're, you're hearing being spoken around you. And, um, maybe I'm just a bit of a chameleon like that. I don't know. <laughs> I think especially when you're younger too, um, mm-hmm. it's, you're like more impressionable that way. Like, I feel like you're less set in your speech patterns and your habits. And so you're very malleable. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting. You know, a a lot of, um, a lot of the British people that I've met seem to resist uh, allowing their, their cadence or or speech identifiers to, to be modified at all. And, And it's, and so it's like some of the worst French accents I've ever heard are, are from the, the British <laughs> who are, you know, neighbors. They should, if anyone should know how a French person sounds speaking French, it would be, it would be you all. Y'all? Y'all. You, all. <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. you guys, you all, or, you know. Well, it's, so, yeah, funny you say that. Like, <clears throat> I, I kind of took the opposite approach when I was in and out of France, then eventually living there for a few years. France. La France. La France. <laughs> I, I, what seemed to work for me for getting it better and for being better understood was to really like try to develop something of an accent. Mm-hmm. Um, when you were speaking French. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Don't ask me to repeat any now. It's all gone. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's interesting because I, I uh, you know, when I, was, when I was in England, I tried to develop something of a, of a, uh, a light American accent versus how I, I grew up talking, you know, which was much more nasal and, you know, just being in Illinois or, or like when I was down in, in, in Louisiana, I was just, you know, you're talking very different, you know, but, and, and so, yeah, you, I, you become a chameleon, but I, I noticed that, um, God, the British fucking hated it when I tried to sound like them. <laughs> well, I was just going to really say, like, you kind of <clears throat> sound more English than I do these days. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was I wondering I was wondering that. I think I I prepared my I prepared myself for <clears throat> the the podcast um sort of you know imagining speaking to a British person. And then <laughs> yeah, you're you 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 come off like um you're from Idaho. So Idaho. <laughs> <laughs> So what, what is identity? Yeah, oh, wait, what we're... is identity? Good <laughs> is that what you're going to ask? <laughs> no. Well, actually, let me let me. Our listeners may not may not know you. I should give us a um, 
They for, probably don't know me. <laughs> for our <laughs> listeners. We pulled you out of hiding for this special episode. That's right. <laughs> we have, we have um, uh, our listener, Martha Haynes in Florida. Thank you for listening. Um, <laughs> Vancouver-based Ashtanga Vinyasa teacher, uh, Jeff McKenzie, is a firm believer in the highly adaptable and therapeutic nature of yoga practice. Oh, don't you just Jeff, bios. Yeah. Nice, isn't it? <laughs> Jeff, who describes himself as British, uh, has been practicing yoga asana since 1998 and following the Ashtanga yoga method exclusively since 2004. And we wanted to have you on uh, to talk mm. about uh, male identity. That's exactly right. <laughs> I've been exclusively that- male since 2004. Uh, <laughs> Is that true? Are you still exclusively practicing the Ashtanga yoga method? Um, Let's go back to the more highly adaptable part of it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, we'll focus on the first part of it. (laughs) Yeah, it's like um, exclusively, no. Um, I guess in short, two of the big main practices I do right now are Wim Hof method and um, kettlebell training. And... (laughs) <laughs> I practice Ashtanga like like a guy in his late forties who's you know who teaches every morning and so kind of has to go through the motions just to still feel a little bit authentic. Right. right. Yeah. yeah. Know that but but you can also practice the yamas and niyamas while you're doing your kettlebells. <laughs> what what are, what are they? <laughs> <laughs> and and so we, we, we got get, you covered. We can we can dig in a little further into what the oh, Yamas are dust- later in the podcast. <laughs> okay, I got a dusty bookshelf over here with some yoga stuff on it. Maybe I can yeah, put yeah, that you down can real quick. Yeah. look yeah. for Patanjali. Patanjali Yoga okay. Sutras. Okay, got it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Look, okay. it looks like suit sutures. Looks sutures. like sutures. Yeah. Sutures. How do you say that when you stitch yourself? Sutures. 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 Yeah. That's Actually, what it is. I'll put my hand up now. I think about it. Now you mentioned the sutures. Probably my most consistent practice um, is chanting. I chant every morning. So, you do. Mm-hmm. Did you Did you pick that up at Jayashree's? Um, I actually picked it up and was surprised at myself that I actually liked it and got into it first when I did. Um, <clears throat> The yoga, t- the, the the two hundred hour YTT that I did way back when in Victoria in two thousand four, mm-hmm. it wasn't really Ashtanga related. It was kind of just studio related. You could kind of mm-hmm. pick your stream really, um, and that's where I got first introduced to chanting, um, at least as a practice, more than just doing it occasionally at the, at the start of an Ayanga class or an Ashtanga class, but. Um, yeah, I really liked what I got out of it. I didn't pick it up then. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, yeah, within a couple of years, I was in Mysore. And I think 2007, I was, yeah, Jose, Jose Pena, the Spanish mm-hmm. guy. You know him? My yeah. fucking student, Jose Pena, <laughs> the, the, the fucking uh, veterinarian, <laughs> the one that I taught from fucking day one. Good who man. knew nothing before he met me. And then the last time, <laughs> last fucking class that he took with me, I kicked him the f- out of my class. But he left in well, anger. I told him to go from the back row to the front row. And he took his mat and he fucking threw it 
and then walked out. <laughs> so you tell me who got kicked out. He's Spanish. He's, uh, he's fiery. Yeah, I um, I gave anyway, him a hug. So. <laughs> <laughs> Jose Pena. Jose, I, if you're listening, we miss love you. Love you, Jose. Love you, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> so, <clears throat> he, yeah, he took me to Jai Shri on uh, my second trip to Mysore when we were all oh, there cool. um, practicing with Saraswati. Yeah. Wow. Jose uh, le- studied from, with me at the Brighton Natural Health Center in uh, uh, the oh, south really of England. English connection. Yeah. So he was a veterinarian there. So your first trip to Mysore, you went and practiced with Saraswati. No, that was that was my second. Okay. Um, my first trip, I went in fall 2006. Mm-hmm. And I thought I was going to go for three months. Um, but, of course, I got there and I found out that, oh, yeah, they're going to shut the Shala for, you know, half of <laughs> December and half of January, but not right. tell anyone. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Surprise. <laughs> Surprise. <laughs> so it was like two months and a week. At the end of 2006. And then yeah, I went that back. used to happen all the time. <laughs> yeah, and then my, that 2007 trip a year later was, um, <clears throat> that was when Shambhav was born, so only Saraswati mm. was teaching. Ah, right, okay. Yeah. And Patabi Joyce was upstairs, not feeling well. Right, he got sick in like March of 2007, I think. Yeah, something like that. I think he, took, then, a, I think he took a tumble in the shala the month after I left from my first trip. Okay. And then yeah. kind of went downhill from there. Mm. Yeah. Is that is that when you two met each other? Yeah, I think it was the. F- I might have seen you your third trip. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So I remember all my friend, all the all the friends, because I was I was living in Canada at that time. So everyone, of course, asked me, "Oh, do you know Jeff and Harmony?" I'm like, "No, yeah. I haven't met them yet." Hmm. And then it was that we went. We were all there for a summer season, 2008. Yeah. I believe that was the year you ruptured your appendix and had to have surgery. Yes, it was. In fact. Yeah. Yeah, that made big waves in the yoga community at the time. <laughs> it's uh-huh. pretty, not many people get to have surgery in India. So. <laughs> That's right. It's a rite of passage. Unless, you know, unless they get the meniscus trimmed. Yeah, yeah sure. exactly. Did that happen to you? Did you get surgery in India? No, I, I considered it at some point um, yeah. for, for a torn meniscus. But um, yeah, never got the surgery to this day. No. Went to the dentist. I remember... Design. About you. Yeah, I did go to the dentist a lot too. It's much cheaper than here. I had my teeth whitened too. <laughs> it was like 50 bucks to get your teeth bleached. I was like, fuck, I'm doing this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I remember you were like really a little bit like grumpy when I first met you. <laughs> yes, I remember you mentioning that and feeling like, God damn it. Why does everyone say that about me? <laughs> You were like the angry guy. Oh, <laughs> oh daggers in my heart. Yeah. Yeah. But what what was going on? You had a lot going on, I think, physically at that time, too. Yeah, my knees were fucked. Um, <laughs> yeah. And it was summer in India, so my pitta was probably aggravated like crazy. And um, yeah, that's about all I can think of. Um, <laughs> how did you? How did you? Was it skiing? Is that how you to your knees? Is no, it, it was, <laughs> was doing that stupid yoga shit. Oh, um, oh yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, you start out with good legs, and you know they're strong, and then you you break them trying to do a. Do you remember how it happened? I do. Yeah. How did it um, happen? The 
at least this is my, I've, I've never had this confirmed, but because, you know, there's 30% of the population out there walking around with torn meniscus who don't know it and don't feel it. So oh, you can never know these things accurately. Mm-hmm. So my osteopath tells me anyway. Um, <clears throat> and I did my most recent one doing something totally non-yoga related. Anyway, um, oh, no. I believe it happened for me back in 2004 is when it started. When I went to my prior to that, I practiced mostly in the afternoon. I would go to afternoon classes, mm-hmm. and that I would, I'd always been able to done do padmasana if I was warm. Right. Um, mm-hmm. But this was my first morning class I'd been to in forever. The studio mm-hmm. was a bit cool, and like right at the end for Bada Padmasana, I was like. Oh yeah, I can get my left leg on top. No big deal. It's a little <laughs> stiff, but let's try. <laughs> oh. And it just went fizzle, pop, twang, and I was like, "Oh, that didn't seem good." And no. uh, yeah. nothing much happened there. But then, as I got more and more into doing um, a stricter version of the practice, let's say, mm-hmm. you know, I was kind of doing drop-in studio Ashtanger at the time. Yeah. Um, but later that year. I started doing the practice more ortho, in a more orthodox fashion, let's say. Right. And that was also the time when I went back and did another winter in the Alps. So my legs were getting a pounding. Mm-hmm. And, <clears throat> and yeah, they just generally slowly deteriorated over time till when, yeah, about a year and a half, about a year later, they started to get real bad. By the time I first went to Mysore, oof, I was in total denial that I had any kind of knee injury going on i thought it was just something loose that needed to let go (laughs) well yeah this is that's such an interesting point that you bring up because uh you know we're russell and i were kind of talking about this the other day like this idea like back in back in the day there was this real idea about like an opening right yeah you Uh had an opening in your knee and so Uh we were like all just kind of walking around half injured like thinking that our bodies were opening so like a very serious senior teacher would have said to us you know when when you were going through say mula bandhasana um or um uh varanchyasana the one where you, you sit yeah, on your varanchyasana. foot varanchyasana. when you sit on your foot and and you you tear your knee it's it creates more space <laughs> between the knee joints when you tear it and it actually really helps it's like a genetic uh, advancement advancement yeah <laughs> do you, me- you remember being told that i'm yeah. not going to embarrass that teacher by saying their name but that's unthinkable now to say <clears throat> in the shtanga room like oh yeah that's going to help it's going to create more space once you tear that meniscus a bit yeah so my first trip in that first trip in 2006 it flared up real bad because you mm-hmm. know it was my first time in the shala i was like i got to do everything proper i don't want to get stopped anywhere right um <clears throat> and with the heat and the excitement, I went deeper than I had been going on that side of things. Anyway, right. um, got myself into some trouble there and was hobbling for about three weeks. Uh. And finally went to the ortho guy at the top of the road um, and, you know, got my $100 MRI. Fantastic. <laughs> yeah. And it was like, yeah, you got a full front to back bucket handle tear. Wow. And, <clears throat> you know, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> And so what did you do with that information? Did you go and talk to Sherrod or did you modify your practice? I modified my practice. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't think I talked to Sherrod at that point. Um, he actually buggered off to Japan halfway through that trip. <laughs> um, so it was just Guruji and Saraswati. So, you know, 
Yeah. There's not much clear communication going on there. Yeah. Um, but they didn't question me either. And <clears throat> and then I think shortly after that trip, John Scott came to Vancouver. So I came over, did the workshop with him, and I asked him about knee stuff. And he was the one who introduced me to using the rolled up towel spacer. Right. Oh, yeah. 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 And I yeah. was like, I was like the master of that for about three years. <laughs> Just, did, you found your cure. Did it actually? Did it actually help you to have that space? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Okay. That's yeah. a big help. Yeah. Oh. And um, you know, I still find people who have. I I still offer that as a solution to people to this day if they want to keep um, moving through what they've got going on, and and it it is helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, but then also. Um, one thing that also really helped me get past it eventually was a tip from who's our friend down in Houston. She's a physiotherapist. Rachel. Rachel, Rachel Nystrom. Nystrom. Yes. Mm-hmm. She grabbed me outside the shower one day. She was like, you know what, Jeff, you need to do some, some, she gave me some physio tips basically to do before I started practice every day to get all the muscles firing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that helped me a lot with um, not re-injuring. Wow. Yeah, because That's when, a, when you when you re-injure it or aggravate it, the inflation inflammation that happens around the joint prevents the muscles from really tightening up and like right. cinching the joint up. So you can be as delicate as you want, and you're you still run the risk of you know rolling over the tear and mm-hmm. getting the owie for a few days. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, the inflammation's almost worse than the injury. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. Rachel's amazing. I I went there once um, with my Scottish friend, Jill McLean. So I, I went to Rachel's with, with Jill McLean, who's a good friend of Rachel's and the assistant and apprentice there. And, and Rachel said to Jill after class, like, oh, wow, Russell's really, um, he really tore his hamstring, eh? She probably didn't say A, you know, because she's really <laughs> And um so uh jill said what do you mean it's like well you can tell that russell's had a full avulsion on his left leg because the veins have settled into the top of his calf and they're bunching up there from where um his hamstring fell and slid down his leg i didn't have any idea what she was talking about so jill um told me that and I, we took a picture and we looked at, I've never seen the back of my calf standing up. I never, <laughs> never looked at it. And there's, yeah, there's bunching up with the veins there. What do you mean you don't check your butt in the mirror before you go out? On <laughs> the calves, not the calves, mate. No, just, you know, just the tip of my, my bottom, my little pert bottom. So, and, and I was like, wow, that's wild. And it was just <clears> such a, like that she could see that and see that in people's bodies. She's really a fantastic practitioner that way. And, mm. you know, fantastic resource as a teacher. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. One, th- one thing that I started doing with, with that injury, um, if we're, if, if you don't mind me sharing no. uh, techniques, uh, <laughs> because I had a, I had a grade, uh, I think it's a grade three tear, which is in a full avulsion. So the, the tendon actually separated from the bone completely. And you're supposed to get it, it stapled back together, but I never did. Well, you have you have a few hamstrings, so you, you don't really need to. I, the, of the two hamstrings, <laughs> I tore only the one of them. Yeah. And um, what I did is I, yeah, I started taking a, um, 
a racquetball and I'd sit on the racquetball at the insertion point of the injury. Mm. And then I could bend forward without re-injuring the hamstring. And then I started keeping that racquetball in class or class, I guess you'd say in England. Class, yes. <laughs> and um, in the Ashtanga class, I started uh, keeping a rubber ball. Um, and I did that. And I, I would just, I would recommend it for Ashtanga teachers that are out there because you get people come in, coming into class all the time, fucking complaining about their hamstrings. But if you, if you're in Janushasana A and you sit on that ball, or even in Pashimatsanasana, just below the insertion, point, just below the insertion point, which is at the sit bone, it's magic. Mm. It's hmm. like you feel such a sense of freedom to be able to go forward into the pose. I had that happen once too. Not as bad a tear, obviously, but that tear you get at that insertion point. And you had sur- surgery. No, I didn't have surgery. When you, when you were in ballet, I, yeah, I tore my hamstring when I was in ballet. And that's no, I didn't have surgery. Oh, okay, <clears throat> um, but there was another trick of taking. I don't know if you've ever done this, but you take the strap and you tie it or strap at the top of the the right. leg, like yeah. the quadricep and the hamstring, right yeah. near the top, really tight. Yeah, and mm. it does kind of the same thing as the ball. Yeah, the the ball makes you feel a little bit more secure and it also seems to go right at the scar tissue mm. as well and and because you can massage scar tissue out yeah you have to yeah, yeah. so mm. what happened to your knee <laughs> yeah after, after three years using yeah. the towel then what um well the inflation inflammation pretty much went away um and yeah i think by about by about 2010, it was it was decently good. Um, occasionally, it will still sort of pop and roll over the the mangled tissue, I guess. Um, <laughs> like with meniscus, a lot of people um, experience a sense of locking in the joint. Is what happens when you mm. you know you mm-hmm. rotate the lower leg the wrong way at a certain angle of the joint, and uh, you experience a, a sensation of locking, mm-hmm. and very occasionally that will still happen and when it does it's awful it sounds awful you feel like you're never going to be able to straighten your leg again and you basically you know basically just have to fold my leg and sit in virasana for three seconds and then I can yeah to unlock it yeah it's just a real yeah. and unlock it wow yeah because it's basically i mean i think the way i imagine it is like especially if you you can watch youtube videos of surgery on torn meniscus and mm-hmm. it's basically like what should be a smooth surface is you know looks like an earthquake happened and just like Ooh, <laughs> all the asphalt yeah. just bubbled up and wrapped over itself uh yeah. and so if you if you miss a line and catch that that that's what seems to block up the joint and lock it out right and give that sensation of locking um so yeah, yeah i've had that on both knees at certain times i've had that in my right knee but very seldom and with no pain but yeah the left leg was hell yeah, for for quite some time but yeah, I managed to managed to just kind of heal it with prayer and Ashtanga yoga. <laughs> <laughs> I remember Sharat used to Sharat used to, <laughs> Sharat used to uh, let you kind of modify some things like the oh. or um Vatyanasana in second series I or like hearing that about Jeff, that, or that Jeff could things. get away with murder. I remember <laughs> hearing that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I went to him a couple of times and I was like, look, dude, I would really love to do these postures in the way 
I can do on the other side of my body, but like every single time that I do, something bad happens. And he's like, well, you know, just modify it. I was like, yes. All pass. <laughs> yeah. That's so, amazing you know, that, you, like, that you called him dude. I always... <laughs> I always call him um, Parma Guru, and he really like, responds well to that. But yeah, I've never I've, tried, dude, I don't, and yeah. I will the next time. <laughs> to, to be fair, I probably didn't say dude, but, you know. <laughs> no, no, no. It works, you know. Uh, um, so, yeah, I think, you know, I used to kind of joke. I think, like, in Supta Urva Paravajrasana at the end of Intermediate Series, he would probably mm-hmm. look the other way when I tried to do that <laughs> That's right. Just pretend he didn't see it. Yeah. (laughs) You know, one time I was in that pose and I had just broken my toe the day before. Um, I was in, uh, we were in, it was was Monday and the day before it was Sunday during the lead class. And uh, he kept calling out to me to point my toe in the headstands. Russell, Russell, point your toe. (laughs) Yeah, like that. And, um, and I jumped out of it with my toe pointed Ooh. and I broke it. And then like he, I forget the the fellow that was next to me. Um, let's just say, call him Bob. And he said, oh, oh, I'm sorry. I thought you were Bob. And, so, <laughs> and I had broken my toe. I heard it snap and I felt it. And I was like, oh, fuck that hurt. And um then I was hobbling and I, and I couldn't put any weight on it. couldn't touch it. It was black. Mm. The skin was black. And I walked yeah. in with a bandage on it the next day, just limped into class because I'm not going to, I'm not going to miss class. <laughs> and, um, and I went through the whole practice and just like, didn't do a single chaturanga with my toe on the ground. It was, I did, I did all of them with, you know, like three limbs, you know, mm-hmm. and I just put my other foot on top of the other one. And I was right in the front row and he was just, he kept watching me and I could see it. And I finally got to Supta Urba Padavadrasana and, um, and I would go up and I don't even touch it. I just roll over. And I was about to go on to the, to the, uh, to the next side. And he says, Russell, again, <laughs> take your toe. Look. <laughs> 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 Oh my god. No, no mommy, please. No. And and he was just like like stone face staring at me. You know, like yeah, okay. And I went back and I went back again. I rolled over under my shoulders and I took my toe and it hurt to f- touch it, to physically mm-hmm. touch it, you know? Mm-hmm. And then I rolled over and I felt like this shudder of pain <laughs> go through my body. Uh. And I just like stared at the ground for a moment, like with that pain. Yeah. And he just like, yeah, good. <laughs> and then I I went through my my the rest of my practice, and then he gave me three more postures. <laughs> Doesn't you, that you sound miraculously cured? Yeah. Doesn't that sound like a classic? Like oh yeah, that's oh uh, yeah. My source sounds yeah, amazing. I know, right? What what were we doing? <laughs> I I want to ask a you, lot of coconuts. <laughs> drinking a lot of coconuts. I I wanted to ask you. I I was watching um, an interview with you on the Akam Inhale, which was 
Fantastic. And I, and in the middle of it, I saw your natural born child on Jeff's motorcycle <laughs> in the middle of the video. And I was like, oh, look at that. It's little Jediah. Did you, and I was like, Harmony didn't even know the video existed or that, that Jed was in it. And I was like, it was fantastic. He seemed, he seemed, he seemed absolutely thrilled. And he must have been like your little buddy at one point. Well, I was I was red uncle at one point because I think yeah. we, all, we all ended up on the same flight that trip from Vancouver, and I had a red That's shirt right. on, so I was red uncle there for the rest. Red of uncle for quite some yeah. time after that. <laughs> Wow. Red Uncle, that's what he called him. And were yeah. you go- that's what Jed called Jeff yeah. was Red Uncle? Yeah. That's such an Indian way of <laughs> describing someone like Grandi Uncle. It's Red Uncle. Red Uncle. <laughs> that's what he called him. Yeah. Did he use his Indian accent to call him that? Call you that? No, no I don't think so. He just used his little five year old accent. Wow. Yeah, I remember that. I think we were like blasting up and down like eighth cross on my uh, on my bike yeah. you drove him on the motorcycle yeah. uh-huh wow <laughs> i would imagine i bet harmony took that photo yeah i think i did i saw it and i was like oh i think i took that photo <laughs> yeah. wow i i mean i i used to do that i used to drive him on the back of my my dad's motorbike and you know fall asleep and um <laughs> did it sounded to me from different things i'd read about you that the bike is really important to you and like there's an ethos to it behind it would you would you agree yeah i mean not not anything like set in stone or um or such but yeah i've been attracted to motorcycles since i was a kid and um there was no way i was ever going to get one out of my parents so <laughs> i didn't even bother <laughs> trying or asking but um yeah i was i was always attracted to them so the first opportunity i had to like rent one and go flying i i absolutely did that and um was that in india that would have been in bali on my on my first trip there in 1997 mm. um i mean it's, you know it's, it's southeast asia you all get around on two wheels yeah um but that was the first time i got to go on anything well it wasn't the first time i'd ridden a motorcycle um <clears throat> the first time didn't really even count but um yeah i was totally into it just and some, you know, freedom machine. Yeah. yeah. They really are just, um, yeah, hard to put into words. My folks are, were really kind of bikers at one point, especially my dad was, a, you know, a biker, like a Harley guy with the mm-hmm. leather and the, and the whole attitude. Um, and I, you know, in a, a more natural world, I probably would have grown up emulating him and doing that. But, I'm, you know, my folks separated and then, my dad got into a really bad accident and I couldn't ever really face it. And I'm there, I'm sure there's some kind of some scar there, some karmic seed that I like, I, I don't really want to touch a motorcycle because of that, of what happened to my dad. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I just wonder, you know, have you ever gotten into any, any kind of scrapes in it? Do you, you know, do you, do you, where have you gone on the bike? You know, how do you feel about it? Um, definitely had some scrapes. The worst one, um, I almost broke my ankle. Um, this was, yeah, this was probably my third. This was back in like 1999 in Bali, I think. And um, yeah, just basically T-boned a, a minivan that pulled out in front of me. Right, yeah. And um, I wasn't, <laughs> back then I didn't know actually how to operate the brakes properly. Like a lot of, <laughs> lot, well, like a lot of cyclists, 
<laughs> we're kind of gun shy on the front brake. But motorcycling yeah. is all about the front brake. Well, not right. quite all, but most oh, of it is. Oh, that's what you mean. Right, yeah. Because, yeah. you know, we've all gone over our handlebars on a bicycle. Right, yeah. Brake too hard. Um, but, you know, that's actually what you need to do on a motorcycle to sit the bike down and um, gain that traction through the tires. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was riding around like a maniac and only using the back brake. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> yeah. So I couldn't stop in time to hit this before hitting this minivan. So I kind of just like laid it down, slid it sideways into the van and cracked right. my foot against the wheel well and was on crutches for a week. Um, yeah. But yeah, that, that was about the worst of it. Um, yeah. And then, then I went to riding school when I finally like officially got a, a you know, as you, as you, as we all do, you know, we all ride two wheelers in, in India yeah. Um, yeah. with, without licenses. That's right. Yeah, you just ride or around helmets. on the bikes without any licenses exactly. <laughs> or helmets for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in flip flops. In flip flops. Exactly. <laughs> Dress for the crash, not for the ride. People. <laughs> yeah. And then, um, Oh, where was I going with that? Back in, so in 2015, I, I came back to Canada, bought a bike, went to riding school, which was amazing. For a moment yeah. there, I was like, ooh, I want to be a motorcycle riding instructor now, you know? Yeah, yeah I, wow. I had such a great time with the company I trained with. Um, and then <clears throat> I cannot remember where I was going with that. Well, you learned how to ride a bike properly. Yes. Um, <laughs> and... Actually, yeah, the way they, you know, the training was brilliant. And this, that's, this is where it really struck me as like, okay, no fucking around now. I'm riding a proper bike in a place where people are not used to seeing motorcycles. Yeah. Uh, And like studies have proven that people just, same with cyclists, drivers are just not meant, you know, trained to see cyclists and motorcycles. and, um, And so, I started taking it a lot more seriously and I started to really find like the practice of motorcycle riding and how, you know, you basically whilst enjoying your ride or your commute or whatnot, also got to ride as if everyone out there is trying to kill you and no one can see you. Yeah. Um, And, you know, like with anything, learning learning good technique is so so helpful. And there's this technique I learned in those riding courses that I, I use every single time that I go for a ride. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, always wear my gear. I you know very occasionally, maybe like once or twice in the summer, I might just run a quick errand and just like helmet, shoes, and gloves. I mean, right. Obviously with clothes as well. You know, pair of jeans on. <laughs> Um, helmet shoes and gloves yeah yeah Yeah, some kind of some kind of pride and it always i always feel really self-conscious and very vulnerable and it's just never worth it you know i invested in in a jacket that basically had it's basically mesh that can hold up to road rash and so it's like a fully ventilated thing um, but as far as big rides, I, um, I guess my first big mission was, yeah, late in 2015, I went and taught for a month in Edmonton, Alberta. Oh, and, just north of here. I saw you there. Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, you saw. I remember. I, and I had a little 250 sport bike at the time, yeah. which 
I had no business doing so, but I rode it from Vancouver over the Rockies to Edmonton. <laughs> wow. Fantastic. In like a day and a half um, or in like, yeah, in two stints basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and then rode it back after the month too. I think I was like the only motorcycle on the Coquihalla. Um, yeah, because it highway. was like November, I think. It was, no. It was, or October? It was early October. Right. When you're actually not supposed to be on the roads and you're supposed to have snow tires. And- exactly. <laughs> yeah. Oh, right. like, dangerous. She'll yeah. be right. No worries. Come on. <laughs> um, and yeah, that, that kind of gave me a taste for longer trips. So mm-hmm. in 2018, I, I basically kind of cooked up a charity road trip in support of um, Odinati and Yoga Stop. Oh, right. Yeah. And um, I, I kind of spent early spring connecting with a bunch of Ashtanga centers across Canada and tried to basically lace a circuit together where I could spend six weeks going across Canada and uh, stop in at places and run, um, run donation classes where we could get people to donate to a, a GoFundMe and send it all to Odinati. Wow. But that that's explains why, you, why the Sons of Anarchy, Anarchy is really a good show. <laughs> that really explains a lot. Uh, Those people do a lot of good on their motorcycles, I hear. The they're, Sons they're of Anarchy? Yeah. Those yeah. people? Yeah. yeah. Those guys. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, those fictional biker gangs. But um, um, no, there, there are some organizations in the biker community that definitely, um, um, yeah, get together and, and do big rallies and, um, yeah, charity rides and events. Mm-hmm. Okay. I was in South Africa um, back in 2015, and they were having, like, some kind of insane um, international bikers uh, gathering. Hmm. And there was, like, I don't know, thousands upon thousands of motorcyclists that came from all over. Amazing. I like to do solo missions on my bike. I have one or two friends that I ride with here in Vancouver, um, but they're pretty chill guys. I don't tend to go on group rides. I find things tend to get, people get a little bit out of hand when, uh, when they're all riding together. I mean, there mm. is a there is a buzz when you encounter a bunch of motorcyclists on the road all, you know, heading up the right. Sky Highway to Whistler or whatnot. Um, and I can feel how easy it would be to get carried away and start to ride above your level or above your bike's capacity mm. for handling and whatnot. And right. so I tend to avoid it. I like doing just little solo blasts by myself just to kind of mm. like stretch my legs, empty the mind. Yeah. Nice. Interesting. You know, one thing I, I was thinking about hearing you is, um, again, this kind of notion of identity and how malleable it is and, you know, how circumstances can change your identity. I was thinking about just in the last couple of years, I've realized that I'm no more like my my father. I'm the most like my father <laughs> when I'm alone with Jediah. Uh-huh. And this thing kind of comes over me where I go really stoic because he doesn't fucking talk. My dad doesn't doesn't <laughs> unless he has a very particular wild story he wants to tell you. Mm. Um and then he's an amazing storyteller, but then he will just be silent for hours upon hours. He talks to me. Yeah, he liked you. <laughs> um you guys had a real good connection. So I 
I'm I find myself being like him when I'm with Jed, and it's it's interesting. And I was wondering, you know, you talked about that your your parents would absolutely um, forbid have forbidden you from having a bike, and yet we are our parents in some way. And I'm wondering, you know, what is it about them that's in you that wanted to be on the bike and, you know, wanted to get the, get the fuck out in the first place and go to France and go to Bali and go to, go to India. Mm-hmm. That's a good question. Um, not one I can sure I can answer. Um, are they modest people? Are they? Well, I don't know. Get a few drinks in them. Like they're like anybody, you know. They'll start telling stories. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. But I can definitely relate to having a stoic, quiet dad. Um, I've you know I've learned in the last few years that that's it's a pretty common uh, common occurrence. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think you know before I met my mom and got married and settled down, my dad was definitely you know a young man out and about in the north of England. I was I was really happy to find out. Um, a couple of years back, we were chatting about motorcycling, and he um, he'd gone on a cycling holiday when he was sixteen with a couple of mates to um, to the Isle of Man. Oh yeah, and, for a concert probably. Uh, no, Isle of Wight would be. It was where the festivals were. Oh no, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> the Isle of Man is this weird little um, island in the um, in the middle of the Irish Sea between England and Ireland, um, and. Yeah, they didn't know it, but they'd just gone on a cycling holiday, staying in B&Bs and such. But they happened to be there while the the Isle of Man TT races were there. Um, and What's that, a TT race? Uh, if nobody knows what the Isle of Man TT race is, everybody <laughs> should listen to this. Listen to this right now. Pull up YouTube. Pull up Isle of Man TT and let your mind be magnificently blown. Okay. By, <laughs> by um, awesome, semi-sane people. Um, using motorcycles for, you know, some of the things that they were meant to be used for. Um, you can tell I've been down this rabbit hole a fair bit, hey? <laughs> um, the, so the Isle of Man TT is a, it's like a motorcycling festival that happens are, every year. Go on. Are, they, are motorcycles meant to be used for wife swapping? <laughs> <laughs> and it is, this. it's actually one of the longest running sporting events in the world too. They've been doing this over a hundred years. And, um, Basically, what they do for two weeks every late May, early June. Oh, it's a motorcycle fest. It's a motorcycle fest and, and a <laughs> wow. race. A race meet. They create a thirty-seven mile circuit oh, around wow. the public roads of the island. Oh, good god! And they let people race on a time oh. trial basis, so that every wow. ten seconds you got guys and gals starting off and riding these machines at their full capacity around public roads. Wow, it's sort of like a, a Formula One race. Yeah, like a, a Formula One race for amateur bikers. Well, it's I think it was amateur back in the day. This is like a fully fledged sport and industry these days. It's kind of like, okay. Um, and there's there's other places. It, it, this kind of stuff is big in Northern Ireland as well. This is the soundtrack to the Diamond Races. That's suitably <laughs> rock and roll, isn't it? <laughs> Sounds very Formula One. So he cycled on his bicycle. Well, he just yeah, he just happened to be on a vacation uh, when that was when that was going on. So it was just like, did, I'm glad did he, he like it? Did he like? Has he ever talked about it? Not really. Like, no. 
<laughs> he just was like, I was there. <laughs> yeah, I was there. I've seen that. It was good. Yeah. Was, was, there was, there's some interesting things about you, Jeff. Um, for example, you, you grew I, up competitively on. swimming. You were a UK top 20 rank swimmer. Uh, you were into rugby and then skiing in France, and that you, yet you described your father and your parents as uh, lower middle class. I'm I'm trying to figure out what the fuck happened to you. And well, I like I'm think was he in the military? I no. mean, what is it about him that got to you? Um, my dad was he was also an athlete. He was a cricket player, soccer player. Oh, he's a cricket um, player. There I, you go. Yeah, uh, more of a class soccer class bending. Yeah, more of a soccer player than a cricket player, I think. But um, mm-hmm. a footballer. Yeah, a footballer. Um, <laughs> foot. Yeah, footballer. <laughs> and you've been in Canada too long. I know, right? Again, it's like you adapt to be understood. Did he say right? soccer, not yeah, football? He said soccer. Oh my fucking Christ! Okay. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, yeah so I rem- we played I rem- cricket. I remember, so my dad's office was not that far from where we grew up. And it was kind of on the edge of town. So kind of like Parkland, golf course, close by. And uh, I do remember actually uh, on school holidays, if I had nothing to do, occasionally my dad would go running on his lunch break. And I would mm-hmm. like go meet him and cycle alongside him while he ran. Oh, um, <clears throat> and Fit. Yeah, so he was definitely into that. And... Um, it was he, I think, I guess the first things my folks had me do, I think first kind of classes I went to was trampolining. And mm-hmm. then that evolved into judo. And then after the judo, it was swimming. And it was the swimming that really stuck. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that stuck for years. Um, it became a champion. Well, you know, I mean, without blowing my own trumpets, like <laughs> I, was, I was pretty good at most things that I did. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's like athletically speaking. Um, and yeah, the, the swimming was what took me the furthest and yeah. So your father, what did he do then for a living? What did, what did your oh, folks yeah, do? Yeah. So, um, he started out as an insurance salesman going door to door, like probably like straight out of high school, basically like at like nineteen twenty. Um, and basically worked his way up through that company until the point where he, yeah, he was like sort of management for like, let's probably say the last couple of decades of his career. Mm-hmm. So, but you know, yeah, worked his way up. Yeah. Amazing. My grandfather did that too. Mm-hmm. Just uh, for our listeners at home, say, you know, uh, Valerie Swift, who was a great friend of the program, <laughs> um, in 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 England and Great Britain, class is something quite a bit different than it is in America, where it's kind of based entirely on money. So even so, that you described your your father, who was an executive, an account manager, <laughs> insurance company, as lower middle class, is quite telling. And that's really, you know, you'd have you'd be upper middle class if you were a school teacher. Uh, I don't. I, depends where you taught school, though. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, fair enough. Maybe if you taught school, maybe if you were a headmaster at a grammar school, um, right. you would be. But if you were just at a regular old secondary school or a comprehensive school, mm-hmm. maybe not. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, maybe I kind of want to rescind the whole lower middle class thing because, um, yeah, it's it's hard to say. It can be real fuzzy, right? I mean, your typical yeah. working class would be people who worked in 
Um, I mean, you know, it used to be in the mines, on the docks, yeah. um, in transportation, all the, all these kind of things, you know? Yeah. Um, and yeah, that, that was definitely a thing. My, I mean, huh, again, actually my dad's dad was more of, I think he was more like towards Harbor master at the, at the docks in the yeah. town where they grew up. Whereas my mom's dad Liverpool. was, was a Steve door, you know, like a crane oh. operator. Yeah. Um, and so let's let's say you know they were aspirational middle class. Sure. I don't know. Yeah, don't yeah, know. That's, <laughs> yeah. Aspiring is that's an that's an expression in England. Are you middle class aspiring or you're upper middle class aspiring? Mm-hmm. It's something that Harmony and I kind of um, enjoy uh, struggling with because we both we're kind of halfy half. We're both half working class, half middle class, mm-hmm. and. Um, we carry a lot of the values of working class, mm-hmm. which is, you know, to not fucking give a shit about anything. <laughs> um, and then we also carry all of these, you know, middle-class values of, you know, being cautious and careful. And, you know, I think the, the middle class is, they invented insurance and birth control. Right. Uh-huh. That was supposed to be a, nobody laughed at that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <I'm> like, <laughs> Thank you. We're like, that that makes sense. (laughs) (laughs) What's your point? (laughs) I think what it sounds like to me is that, yeah, you did. You had a stable family that raised you well with resources, and you became a natural athlete with a lot of confidence to go and do whatever whatever you wanted in the world. And that seems like that's what happened. And then you then you went off. You just really took off for a long time, didn't you? Yeah. Um, yeah, that was, that was really well put, actually, Russell. Um, <laughs> good synopsis. Um, yeah, that is basically what happened. I, I felt, you know, halfway through my A-levels, which is like 16, 17 in England, mm-hmm. um, I just felt stifled. I was like, what am I even doing this for? I didn't know. I was just taking, taking classes that I was good at. But mm-hmm. I wasn't inspired. I was just like, I felt like I was just on this kind of treadmill towards university. That's where my brother had gone. And but I didn't know what for. I didn't, there was no overall purpose to it. Um, and it just happened at that time. It's like, um, yeah, I went on a ski vacation <laughs> with my old school. And um, hmm. a few of the staff that were working at the hotel we were all staying with or staying in were people from the UK who were out there for the season working in the hotel and riding the ski hill on their time off. It's like, Ooh, mm. I, I want me some of that. <laughs> yeah. That sounds like a good idea. Sounds yeah. sexy. <laughs> uh-huh. and, yeah. um, so, you know, I used to joke until recently that, you know, I took a gap year at 18 and I'm still on it. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. Yeah. You know, that's, that's, that sounds right from reading your, your bio that's really actually you know well put that yeah you took a gap year and then and then you here you are now in vancouver still Still. gapped out yeah (laughs) gapped gapped out yeah huh you know one another thing that i i read here and it was interesting um to describe all these different places that you went to and went to go live, whether it was skiing or surfing in, in Bali or in, in France, and, um, that you'd said that you'd found a parallel in the Ashtanga yoga community, um, which is 
people making this this financial personal sacrifice to go to um, a, a nexus point, uh, to go to a mountain or go to a beach or go to Gokulam, and then and then do something quite physical, quite physically challenging, and to do that together, and that um, there was there was a similar value set for those communities, and so. I guess my question is, you know, what is it about that kind of community or what was it, what appealed to you about those kinds of people? I think you got to have a sense of adventure and an ability to kind of throw caution to the wind and, Mm -hmm. um, you know, take a few steps forward, understanding that the path will become clear once you start out. Um, and also a kind of sense of, well, if other people have done it, then I could probably pull it off as well somehow. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it just sort of made sense to me as a way to get really good at something. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. like, if I can, if I can go spend three to four months on the ski hill, riding my brains out, I'm probably mm-hmm. going to get pretty good at it and learn a lot. And have a fucking great time doing it too. <laughs> yeah. Um, and yeah, that was, I think that was the final tipping point towards going to Mysore was like, um, was that sense of, yeah, where are the people? Because in Victoria at the time, there were, there were a handful of Ashtanga enthusiasts, um, a small handful. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was like, okay, where is this really going on? Where are the people who are doing Ashtanga in the world? Where are they? Yeah. And, you know, that's, you know, Patabi Joyce was still alive. I was like, okay, you know, people speak highly of this guy or they did at the time. <laughs> and, um, I was like, let's, let's go check this guy out before he, before he passes on. He's obviously not got many more years left. Mm-hmm. And so it was it. That was it. Basically it was like, yeah, let's go. Yeah. You were there just on his 90th birthday, I think. Uh, yeah, the the year after, I guess. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it really was the point, like the geographical place at the time. I mean, you know, if you really wanted to learn Ashtanga Yoga, that was the place to go and like the- completely immerse yourself in the culture, not just of the yoga culture, but in, in India and in Indian culture and to mm-hmm. practice your guts out and to <clears throat> study and um, meet other people who didn't question your insanity or value <laughs> system or yeah. dietary choices. Uh-huh. <laughs> celebrate all those things. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, and I, I remember – like just you saying that reminded me that in my years leading up to when I first did a, a season in, in the French Alps, I would, I was asking people that I knew sort of in the industry or guides that we had on other holidays that I'd been on and even just looking at snowboard VHS movies that I had at the time, all of them were pointing to Chamonix. And I was mm-hmm. like, oh, okay. And you know, pre-internet there wasn't really much research you could do on it at the time so it was just like where is it where is it on the map mont blanc's there let's could you tell our listeners why chamonix is important chamonix mont blanc is it's one of the biggest if not the biggest massive or range of mountains in in europe so mont blanc the highest peak in europe is right there so Mm -hmm. 4800 meters tall 
and, and Chamonix, unlike a lot of places in the French, Italian, Austrian Alps, Swiss Alps, um, it's not actually a ski station. It's not this place up the side of a hill that's all purpose built and just apartment buildings and ski lifts. It's actually a valley that's been, um, it's, a, it's a big, long valley that's, that's been, um, that's been populated for, for centuries. Mm-hmm. And what's, what's pretty special about Chamonix is that it, it's, it's kind of wild. Um, not so wild anymore. It's definitely kind of, I mean, the mountains are always wild, but, um, um, in terms of, you know, we'll put it this way. All, all the North Americans would come to Chamonix because, you know, you can pretty much go wherever you want. If the lift takes you up that high, you can go, you can access all the terrain you like. Whereas in, in the U S where there's, you know, liability laws and lawsuits and all kinds of things, you know, ducking the rope and going out of bounds, going to the back country, all that's like big deal gets you in trouble. Chamonix, it's like, you know, if they open the lift, that means they're prepared to let you go wherever you can access by going up that lift. And they put right. some lifts in some crazy places. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's, yeah, it's, um, it's fantastic. And because it's down in a valley, there's a, there's a lot more to do over the course of a season you know you're spending most of your months up on a ski hill and and riding the mountain but uh come springtime when there's less snow in the valley you can you can start a mountain bike you can start to climb um you're not just snowed in in this kind of purpose-built uh concrete jungle it's it's just got a lot more to it than that Hmm. is it a bit like whistler in canada um similar I was going to say similar scale. It's kind of like, as far as the mountains go, it's like, and where the lifts take you, it's like, it's 10x Whistler. Right. (laughs) Huge. Yeah, the Chamonix Valley is like five resorts in one. um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, the vertical elevation from, from peak to valley is probably on average about, I don't know, someone will, someone will correct me on this, but. It could well be a couple thousand feet higher, if not more. Wow. Were you saying that the Chamonix is a place that if you're going to ski, this is a place that you're going to end up going to because this is a kind of uh, Shangri-La for skiing. Were you using that as a kind of metaphor for uh, the Mysore experience? Like if if you're going to be doing this kind of activity, you're going to end up there. Pretty much. It's like going to a place like Chamonix, it spoils you for all other places, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. With its vastness mm-hmm. and and the culture that's there, mm-hmm. yeah, it is like going to India. It's pretty hard to, I mean, once you've spent so much time, you know, living in India or in Gokulam or traveling through India or just like practicing in India with all these people that are mm-hmm. completely, you know, absorbed in this this method, it makes you know, when I think of like, well, where else would I go? Nothing else really seems to hold um, the same kind of pull exactly. as that experience, even though it's it's so comprehensively mm-hmm. India. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, interesting. Uh, 
you'd been you'd been around a lot. You've been around the block quite a few times. I, <laughs> I take that as a compliment. Few different blocks. <laughs> let me bad. finish. My, let me finish my sentence. And and I I had also thought by the time I got to India that I'd been you know I had seen things and I'd traveled you know I'd been arrested in Mongolia you know been to, I'd been to England you know. and um but it's different, isn't it? Going to India is. Did you find that like when you first got there, what was it like for you? I actually found it pretty. Mm, how can I put this? Let's just put it this way. You know, I lived in, I lived for five years in Indonesia and I, mm-hmm. I traveled around Indonesia a fair bit during that time. Um, and while it's, you know, there are some comparisons you can make. Um, um, I knew that I wasn't, I knew that, the um i call it like the mass of humanity that you're confronted with when you arrive most places in asia was not going to be right. a shock like mm-hmm. it was when i first went to bali um oh, i see. was surprised by how intense and dense and hot and and aromatic it was yes <laughs> wow. um, okay so i kind of i remember like on the flight over to india just being like oh yeah it's, it's going to be kind of like probably landing in jakarta Mm-hmm. flying into Medan in Sumatra somewhere like that it's going to be hot and stinky and there's going to be a lot of people trying to get your money right. <laughs> and yeah. so I was kind of steeled and ready for it and I also for some reason I guess because of some of my experiences working in Bali and dealing with people who um, you know there's a sort of way of uh, showing respect to people that you don't know and that potentially you need you need things from. <laughs> right. <laughs> I, remember, I remember just drawing on that a lot and mm-hmm. just tapping into whatever patience I could find and just be like, there's no rush to get anything done. Wow. If I just yeah. sit here and chill in, you know, in Shiva's garage and not stress, <laughs> he's going to hook me up. Yeah. <laughs> but if I show up there flapping, as we saw many people do, and like yeah. just flapping and demanding and being all urgent, then you're going to, you know, subtly end up at the back of the line. <laughs> yeah yeah that's amazing i think that's that was the lesson for me was getting to india was the understanding the pace and being comfortable with the pace and say okay i'm gonna get one thing done today yeah i'm not gonna get 36 things done today like i did in manhattan i'm gonna get one thing done Mm -hmm. i'm feel i'm gonna feel really good about that one thing i mailed a letter yeah It's true. Yeah. <laughs> I miss that pace of life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Things feel very fast these days. I know. What happened to two hour naps? Eh? Yeah. Right? Oh, God. I haven't seen a nap in years. Uh, so, so then you, you get to the Shala and you decide for the next 10 years you're going to spend most of your life there. And, you know, <laughs> you do three, tr- three months a, a year, you spend all of your money, you make all of your money through the year to get there, that kind of thing. Is that uh-huh, right? Is exactly. That yeah. Is, yeah. Why did you, why the fuck did you do that, Jeff? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, you know, I guess just like when I, when I went to Chamonix and found other ski bombs, I was like, oh, I found my people. I found mm-hmm. my place again. I found mm-hmm. another spot. Um and just just really went with that and you know by the time by the time you finish up a trip in Mysore you you kind of feel really at home and really at ease there 
Mm-hmm. You know, you know how it all works. You know where to get what you need, and um, and so, and you're you're also having a, a very unique experience that you've sacrificed for, um, and the certain like intangible rewards, if you like, for mm-hmm. for taking trips like that and um, testing yourself, whether mm-hmm. it be like as a traveler or um, on the mat. And, mm-hmm. but yeah, you, you kind of, well, you, you connect with the teacher, you connect with other friends on the path. And yeah, there's a sense of belonging. You know, you, you get the tattoo and you join the cult <laughs> and you're, right. you're in. Yeah, Bob's your uncle. Yeah. Family's your aunt. <laughs> yeah. Um, it is interesting though, these, these sort of ineffable um, boons or like <laughs> these, I don't know, these realizations, I dare say openings that, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that would come when you spend all of your energy, all of your prana, all of your stored up resources on something that you can't define or describe. And you're just sort of open to whatever you you receive from that experience or don't receive, right? And mm-hmm. that's I don't all know. is coming, including nothing. Yeah, <laughs> all including nothing. And it's, I don't know, it's, it is interesting. It's sort of like entering the, the heart of, you know, the mystical experience in a way. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. As you're saying that, you know, I think another side of it too was for me, you know, I was already a yoga teacher when I went mm-hmm. to Bali for the first time. And so... You know, I wanted to learn, and then as mm-hmm. as trips progressed, I wanted authority mm-hmm. from my learning. Mm-hmm. Um, I won't deny that. You know, it's like as much as we all pretended that we didn't want to get or we didn't care if we got authorized or not. I was like, yeah, it'd be good to get that authorization because that would make me unique in the city where I live, and you know, mm-hmm. it would make me stand out professionally, and it would make you an authority as well. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> that's what authorization does. Yeah. Yeah. Is no, that- it's I mean it, and that's like this other interesting side where where there's maybe a uh, underlying desire or pull or um you know where you really are going for for some result in the end, right? And it's it's this funny balance between the two. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've I've talked a lot on the show about um my competitive desire to to accomplish these things that you guys are describing, you know, to have to have the uh authority to to become my own personal to my own personal Richard Freeman. Um uh, that kind of thing. Your own personal Jesus. You'd become my own Jesus. You know, that's that's not gonna. That soundbite's not gonna carry well on Fox News. But um, <laughs> just to say that also, at really, I'm being really sincere, is that I missed my friends, mm-hmm. and so I would go to see Mitchell and Kirsten. I'd go to see uh, Nick Evans. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I'd go to see Randy Uncle at his you know, little house on Contra Road. Like I really. <laughs> really missed these guys mm-hmm. and wanted to spend time with them. And it, for, it, I felt like it was a kind of summer home in the Hamptons where we all would go out, go and finally have a nice time after nine months of total seclusion. 
Very relatable. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. I don't think, I mean, while I would be in touch with certain people while I was away from there, I didn't have any expectations that there would be particular people there, but I always knew that there would be other people there to, to connect with and make friends with and, and have those kinds of experiences with. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. You'd light up. It's like, Oh, they're here. Jeff uh-huh. and Harmony, you know, Jeff and Harmony are here. Oh, fantastic. Awesome. We can hang out. You know, and then you, you yeah. dig in, you meet other new people. It's like, oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the more you go, the more people you know, too. So yeah. then it's it, there's always someone that you kind of know. Yeah. And and you know that you have this, like, deep kind of uh, joint experience. mutual, yeah, enthusiasm and experiences and mm-hmm. um, heart for the practice and for the teachings and for the yoga. And you're both living these like you say, very somewhat secluded lives, like as a teacher Mm -hmm. of this practice, you know, you don't have that many um, social experiences, social experiences. (laughs) Yeah. Good way. Good way of saying it. I I will say though, I'm thinking now there's, you know, there would, there would, I don't know if you experienced this, but like a, a subtle shadow side to that creep in to where it's like, you know, by the fourth or fifth trip, you're starting to feel like a veteran and a semi-local. And it's like, Mm -hmm. I've got the knowledge. I can show the newbies what to do, or I can withhold that from them also. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, that is, that's the dark side. Yeah. When you start like, oh, I've got a nice little click here and that knob is not included. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 I think for an example of that would be, um, I think my trip 2012-13 I, sh- I showed up late at night, as you as you do, um, bunked in with a friend for that night. And I was like, I'm just going to go show up when the last batch are going to go in without having registered and see if he'll let me practice. <laughs> and he did. He, let yeah. me, he gave me the nod and, you know, yeah. and I kind of, you know, I definitely felt a little bit special. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Eh? From something <laughs> like that. And, uh, yeah. Well, wow. he knew you weren't just going to take off. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and I was I was respectful about it. I waited until like the end of the batches. Like, like yeah. I went in with the very last people. But yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it felt. You know, there were times where I mean, I'm sure you were there too, Harm. Where you know, he basically would suggest that we're we're kind of like family. Um, yeah, and yeah. that the shaler is ours too. You know, and so yeah, that yeah. you're um, old student. Yeah, old student first. Yeah, yeah, that kind of that kind of little delicious little shakti pod. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I yeah. mean we had we had a good time. You and I assisting Sharad in the room. In that was 2015 that we were doing that. That was yeah, 2015 into 16, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good times. It was always. I mean, let's face it. It was it was always fun to yeah. assist in the shala. Um, Totally. I'd get so much energy from it. It was, people were like, aren't you tired? Because I'd go in and then like practice and then assist for like a couple mm-hmm. hours and then like yeah. be momming all day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, I, I just got like, it would just give me so much energy. I loved it. I, yeah. I enjoyed fighting with Sharat. <laughs> Sharat uh, would like tell me something like, this is your area here. And it's like, wait, you told me to go over there and I would just like yell back at him. Like, cause that's how Guruji and, and Saraswati are with him. And I would just kind of like really play the edge of what is allowed. <laughs> and I loved it. And it was like, we were, I just felt really chummy in there. Yeah. It was it's good. nice. You do feel like that. It's a, it's a wonderful 
it's a it's like um oh i don't know how to describe this but like you've been um you've been a, a quadruped and then suddenly you're a biped I was like, oh wow, this is cool. I'm, a, I'm like walking around, right? Now. And yeah. all the other quadrupeds are doing all their weird exercises. Yeah, uh-huh. just like you just beat them with a stick. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely fascinating to be in there in a different capacity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and uh, I don't know. I feel like I soaked up a lot in the times that I assisted there, and um, it kind of continues to influence the way I teach, i.e. I don't give my students any attention either. <laughs> Unless they really absolutely need it. <laughs> oh, man. You sit there and read the newspaper? I'm... Uh, not quite, but, you know. Yeah, your phone. Um, so I had heard I had heard this story. Um, I don't know. Uh-oh. I, I had heard the story about like a seven-foot Indian woman no, Indian man. Indian man. I didn't know that was possible. And <laughs> Harmony, did you did you say something like you couldn't adjust him because his package would get in your face? Well, yeah, because you have to backbend these people and help them grab their ankles. And if they're not like already flexible, like Tarek, tall Tarek, Tarek Tamini. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I see he he knows this because he's also very tall yeah, and yeah. I'm very short. And yeah. he was in the shala when when I was assisting. Um, and uh and he said i came i came up to him and he says no you're too short and i was like okay thank you and he knows he can do it like yeah, it's yeah. not but just the length of the body and when where you're that you have short to where face. i have to put my face uh-huh. to someone's hand in it's obscene it, when you're assisting in there you learn all kinds of things because you get to work with different bodies that indeed. you might not normally get to work with it's so true (laughs) but also like you can get i don't know about you but i found myself getting invested with you know because after a week or two you start to get into a rhythm and start helping the same people right and you're back and um you know both times i assisted there i remember starting to get really invested in people and Mm -hmm. you know helping them out and yeah and helping them progress over the course of the month Mm -hmm. that was very satisfying Mm-hmm. It is. There was definitely some people I wasn't into helping. <laughs> <laughs> also, <laughs> yeah, mostly because of the uh, the attitude. Yeah, the attitude. Oh, the that, whole I'm waiting for Shrat to backbend me. Yeah, there's the I'm waiting for Shrat <laughs> to backbend me, and then there's like I'm gonna do this even if it kills me, <laughs> and you're gonna be holding my back at the time that I I herniate my discs. Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. And it's like, no, thank you. I do not want any part of your back herniation. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah. So those two, like, one's like super aggro and one's like super bitchy. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Oh, fun times. So yogic yes. we are. I know. I haven't <laughs> thought about it for a long time, actually. <laughs> I, I want to ask you, um, Jeff, Mr. Mm-hmm. McKenzie. Mm-hmm. So what happens, and this is a kind of a classic therapist trope, actually, when you um, you just take something away from someone and you say, well, what do you do now? How do you manage the situation? So what do you do if you take the possibility of Mysore and India, Gokulam, 
the chai stand, the coconut stand, the assisting, the teaching, the postures. The guru. The guru. What happens when you take all of that away? And given the state of Delta variants and Lambda variants, you know, India might be in the throes of this for the next five years, for all we know. Is it even Ashtanga anymore? What What is it without this place? Do we have... Do we have something here still? I put in a long pause there so you can edit. <laughs> You've really had some time to think that question over. <laughs> what was the question again? <laughs> the question was, yeah, basically what is Ashtanga without Mysore and everything that Mysore means, right? Yeah. Do we yeah. have do we have anything here to do? Um yeah, that's that's a deep and interesting question. Um, I mean, I used to kind of snidely joke, especially when, <laughs> especially when Me Too happened and Ashtanga and Pataba Joyce and the Joyce family got hammered. I was like, everyone mm. was talking about the community. I was yeah, like, mm-hmm. was there ever a community anyway? Yeah, off the top of my head, I mean, I think whoever the current crop of diehards are right now will will remain so until mm-hmm. they're not um but i mean yeah if there's no going to india mm-hmm. you can't see a guru you can you can see him online you can't you know meet other teachers unless mm-hmm. you go to their class and take their class but you can't mm-hmm. hang out in summer camp and even getting a posture becomes kind of irrelevant because you just taught it to yourself. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I mean, okay, if my space is anything to go by, things will get less strict, uh, <laughs> more adaptive, uh, mm-hmm. and I will have less and less motiv- motivation to keep my practice strict because I'm, I'm, I'm not having to go show up and show it to anybody at the end of the year. Right. Um, mm-hmm. You know, because let's face it, that, that would kind of be a motivation. You've got to like prove that you're, you're still on it. You're still right. doing it. Although yeah. I think it would be curious to show up in my soul right now as I am like, what am I like? Seven, eight kilos heavier than I used to be when I was practicing road right. series. And me too, brother. Me too. Yeah. I'm just like, okay, sure. I think I'm just going to do to Navasana today. How about that? <laughs> yeah. yeah. If I can, I might like Marichyasana B might be a struggle. Okay? Totally. <laughs> <laughs> I absolutely, absolutely. I'm right there with you. Mm-hmm. It's like, I actually think that Brichyasana D, I'm not sure I could do it right now. Oh, I definitely could. Yeah. No shame. Yeah. <laughs> um, so then what? Um, well, then I'm just doing, I'm doing push-ups and I'm doing pull-ups in the garage. And that's really what my <laughs> life is. That's well, what I do. I think, yeah. I mean, you could speculate that things would just slowly fade out uh mm-hmm. until yeah the the method kind of didn't have any of its its sharp lines to it anymore mm-hmm. and people just start doing more of what we're supposed to anyway which is like you know make it work for the people who come to us right um and yeah you know it, it, it might be interesting to think about like from guruji's perspective his teacher leaving and going and fucking off back to Madras and Iyengar is up there in Pune and he's there by himself. And he's basically just all by himself. Where was his community? Well, you know, he had, 
that's it. We're we're all unless we look elsewhere for support, we're mm-hmm. all going to get stuck. Mm-hmm. Is is that what kind of like motivated you to go on your own little journey that you've been going on? That's like kind of outside of the very closed Ashtanga yoga circle. Um, <clears throat> there's a couple of things, I guess. Before I went to Mysore, I was always around influences that would that would promote adaptation of the practice. Mm-hmm. Um, I, did, I didn't meet Ron Reed until after I'd been to Mysore a few times, but he was a strong influence on friends of mine. And, you know, he's... Out there in Toronto. Yeah. Um, wow. He founded Downward Dog with Diane Bruni. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was, you know, advanced practitioner, could do it all. But... Yeah. Um, but also loved the Iyengar method and being a big studio owner had lots of different people coming to him. Kind of like they were, you know, those guys were like the, the Canadian version of yoga works for a long time. So all the, all the different influences in the yoga world would come through there. And so that was, that was in me. Um, Despite how kind of like hardcore down the rabbit hole I went for some time. Um, And so I've, I've I've always kind of been a bit back and forth between um, having people practice the syllabus as it is versus you know adapting it. Um, mm-hmm. And then on the flip side of that, about four years ago, um, I was just like, "What do I need to do to get rid of these back spasms?" <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And. I went to see my magic osteopath, and he was like, you got to get stronger, dude. Mm-hmm. Um, he's like, good news is there's no injury. Bad news is you have, you know, you have muscle imbalances through the center of your body, and it's like, you know, there's some stuff trying to do all of the work, and other stuff's not doing anything, and you need to get that stuff online and make it work. So right. that sent me down the road of physiotherapy and um, – sort of a tiny bit of calisthenics but just like bodywork training and um kettlebells training was going on nearby my kettlebells school. kettlebells yeah. oh my goodness and <laughs> those things are heavy well yeah i mean they have all sizes right <laughs> but I, I remember going in there they're all heavy and, uh, so here's the thing you know whereas Whereas, let's say, four or five years ago, I felt like lean and light in my practice and Mm -hmm. could move in a certain way, I wasn't strong. I didn't feel strong Mm -hmm. and stable. When Mm -hmm. I first went to that kettlebells class and picked up a 16-kilo kettlebell, it felt incredibly heavy. And I was like, I was a little embarrassed. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, but... I felt the benefits of it. It felt good to connect to my strength. And it's Mm -hmm. actually something important to do as we get older and start Mm -hmm. to train in resistance or do resistance training um, in a safe and sustainable way. And um, and now because I don't have a class to go to here to practice Ashtanga, um, I mean, I could go to Fiona's place, which would be great, but it just timing doesn't line up with my day and, and teaching and whatnot. Um, <clears throat> I, I think uh, Fiona came up with that nickname for me, uh, Underpants Boy. Underpants yeah. Boy. <laughs> she was ahead of her time. She was that, uh-huh. uh, yeah. that 
super underpants guy. What's his name? <laughs> I think that's a you know, super <laughs> underpants guy. That sounds like a Fiona tag for sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so it's like I got into the I got into going into a class and enjoying mm-hmm. it. You know, I'm practicing mm. with a community and doing something hard. Because um, right. the, the guy I learned kettlebells from, he would um, he combines it, or at least when we used to be able to practice in person with um, you know calisthenics works on the bar, doing pull ups and um, other kind of body weight training in amongst mm-hmm. the kettlebell stuff. So and it just felt good to feel strong, and mm-hmm. I felt there for a while that I could keep doing it and maintain the depth of practice that I liked. But yeah, that didn't last long. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, there's something to, I mean, it's, it's difficult when you start doing a lot of um, opposing movements to keep the range of motion when you're building the muscle mass to keep the range of motion that you had when you didn't have that muscle mass. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that's, you know, that's part of why I was um, following Mark there for a while. I went to, mm-hmm. went Mark to, to practice with you know, Mark Roberts and Deepika. Because I knew Mark had gone down the rabbit hole of the uh, functional range conditioning stuff. And I know people who've done it here as well, like Clint Aikam Inhale and mm-hmm. people I know here in Vancouver. But I wanted to wanted to experience what it would be like to, yeah, go and have a Mysore immersion. But with that as a focus instead of something else, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I found that really useful. But, it's, you know, it's even funny to know it like and Mark and I have joked about this in the past that yeah it's like sure something like functional range conditioning and their systems will keep your joints strong and stable and open and um help maintain your mobility but yeah any kind of resistance work is going to build dense tissue yeah. <laughs> right yeah. Which, then... you know makes deep back bends and leg behind the neck stuff much more challenging if not pretty much out of reach these days for me right yeah yeah but it, yeah. you know i get curious um, just to keep talking about me for a bit, you know? Yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we're here for. <laughs> I do get curious. Like, I, 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 um, funnily enough, I, I did a little self-practice yesterday with the kettlebells and I filmed it. Mm-hmm. I was going to use it for some content from a, a men's group that I run. And, um, yeah, I was kind of shocked when I went back and I reviewed the footage I was like, oh, wow, those shorts don't fit very well anymore, do they? And it's not much like Udiana Banda style, like, <laughs> midriff going on anymore. But, hey, you're moving that 28-kilo kettlebell real well, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And it's uh, Harmony t- said this to me the other day that, you know, she said, you know, I don't see a lot of 47-year-old men getting stronger, but you're kind of getting stronger. And I was like, huh, yeah, I'm not – I can't do anything else, but – I, I I think what always sort of stopped me from weightlifting or doing any kind of work that Mark was doing, you know, back in the day mm-hmm. was, you know, I didn't have a natural backbend. So I didn't want to lose anything that <laughs> might prevent me from doing a backbend. Right. And Mark was somehow able to accomplish his third series backbends and do that, that resistance work mm-hmm. which seemed incredible. But as soon as I gave up on all of that stuff, gave up on, on range of, on, um, on on serious ranges of motion, you know, putting my foot behind my head or grabbing my ankles. And I was like, yeah. oh yeah, I really kind of like lifting weights. Yeah, and you know what? It's like if you look at 
one of the books that I was given in my 200-hour YTT was was a book by um, <clears throat> Gary Kraftsau, student, oh, yeah. student of um, uh, Desica Char. Yeah. And, you know, in his book, he, he maps out the appropriate practice through the stages of life. Yeah, that would be a big uh, uh, Desica Char move. Yeah. And so it's, you know, it's appropriate when you hit your 40s to tone down the extreme ranges of motion and dedicate less time to asana and shift that focus over to pranayama mm-hmm. and meditation. Mm-hmm. Well, it's good to know I'm doing something right in my life. I think that no, was that's what I tell myself pretty, too, right? I think he was saying <laughs> for men. It's appropriate for men to... Harmony, <laughs> Harmony, how's this experience been for you? i mean i don't know i feel like i feel like you know when you start this practice when you're young and i'm sure i've said this before and you go to really extreme ranges of motion in your body um and and then you also end up having a child or two and like some other extra responsibilities and a life and, you know, this added stress of, you know, a job, like a mortgage and, uh, and taking care of your kid and having to pay for activities and, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> all the things that come with being a householder. I think that your body reacts and responds in a way that it, it just doesn't have the same you know, you just don't have the same energy for the practice that you do when you're, you know, in your 20s or your 30s. And, and without these types of, of life stressors. Just sucking you know? out Shakti out of other men and using it for your own practice. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's almost like there's a certain point, maybe it's, it's hard to spot, but all of a sudden, something that was maybe unthinkable in our, in our, in our exuberant years, let's say, happens yeah. and all of a sudden we give less fucks about it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think like exactly. also, you know, if you've been practicing yoga for 20 years, like asana. Or 30. And I mean, for me, it's like, you know, the physical practice just isn't that interesting. You yeah. know, I'd much rather go into the meditation, into the pranayama, into like, dealing with the energy and the nervous system and these and the mind you know and like that was kind of also what i found interesting anyway Mm -hmm. from the very beginning but the asana you know when you're young and you have a lot of energy (laughs) then you can really like you know do it all you've got energy to burn and that energy needs burning yeah. And I mean, and it's different, I think, if you come to the practice of yoga in your 40s, because you're coming at it from a, a different kind of perspective already, I think. And I don't, I mean, I can't really speak to that personally, because that's just not my experience. Mm-hmm. But I, but from what I see, students that do come to it in their late 30s or 40s or after having a family, and then all of a sudden they're really like enthusiastic and full of energy and they have driving. a lot of energy and drive to do the practice. It's, it, I think it can give you a sense of, of uh, renewed youth, youthfulness, you know? But I do see like the, the enthusiasm when you are coming to something new and maybe that's also something that, 
you know, when you've been doing the asana for 20 years, the, the enthusiasm is a little bit less, yeah. you know, and, and that's why, you know, it's nice to go to a class where you feel like you're learning something again and doing something new with your, yourself. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, pretty much the way I'm approaching the, the practice now is like, it's, it's the lead in to the, to the sitting and the breathing mm-hmm. and it, you know, and it, I I do tap in more to the the pranayama and the breathe uh, and the focusing elements of the vinyasa practice because mm-hmm. um, that that still works. It still does its job, you know. It, it still does what it always did. Mm-hmm. Um, totally. Yeah. <clears throat> and so you know, it's, it's I great mean, I like think that. The, like the back bends and like having some range of motion, some flexibility is really important. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> well, I can yeah. I can still stand up and drop back after a week of focused, you know, attention in that area. Yeah. <laughs> I feel pretty good about it. Yeah, I mean, I I think there's there's definitely something to maintaining a degree of of asana practice that is helpful for like just circulation, but this mobility. Is, this is the primary series, but even really like a sun salutation has a big back bend in it. Mm-hmm. And it's very yeah. far and away from uh, advanced B or advanced yeah, A. Sure, and that's that's what we're talking about, like our um, our reluctance to give up our advanced A practice, right? Yeah, or or the necessity of needing to give it up if you're, you know, wanting to do other things that are feeding your your spirit child. or your inner mm-hmm. child, maybe our, our extra child. <laughs> well, well, definitely, you know, I mean. After after watching that video myself yesterday, there's this there's this part of my ego that's gotten a little louder of like, why don't you do an experiment of like you know, change your diet, drop the kettlebells, and you know drop all the resistance stuff for for three months and focus <laughs> on building your practice back up again and see. Yeah, right. You know. <laughs> yeah, I say that to myself all the time. <laughs> I think I think about you know dropping like 90% of my calories <laughs> every day I think about it. I, I'd like to know about um, this, a couple of the groups that you, you've, you have a men's group, but you also, I think you're in a men's group. Is that the Samurai Brotherhood? Is that what that is? Yeah. Tell- so um, I joined the Samurai Brotherhood in late 2016. And back then it was a local, local to Vancouver community of men of, there was probably about sixty people in the community at the time, um, spread over three, three or four groups, or what we call squads. <clears throat> and I, I stumbled into this. I didn't know what men's work was, um, and but I knew. And this was the same year that that relationship we discussed earlier ended, or was mm. was like starting to end. And finally. Um, <laughs> thank you <laughs> and um i i noticed i was starting to feel a little isolated and so mm-hmm. i signed up for these um panel talks that uh, a guy was running um in town in here here in vancouver and they were they were panel talks with yoga teachers so it was three three different panel talks over three different weeks three teachers in each one and the guy who was posting this uh, sorry hosting this um my now good friend leo chung mentioned at the end of one of these talks just briefly mentioned an experience he has in his men's group and it just kind of lit up um lit up something in my mind so i talked about 
So I talked with him about it immediately afterwards, and he pointed me to the website. I liked what I saw, and uh, yeah, I signed up and I, I joined the group immediately. And um, what is a men's group? <clears throat> yeah, it's a great question, and it's, it's like a men'sies group, but there's less, <laughs> less blood. Yeah. Um, yeah. What do you do? So okay, well, we can't tell you everything that we do. <laughs> It's like a secret society. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to show you the handshakes or anything like that. <laughs> um, but no, all joking aside, it's um, yeah, it's. I think the sub 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 subheading for uh, Samurai Brotherhood is like a community of conscious men, and it's essentially you're ex- we're exploring what it means to be a man and what masculinity is and how to how to basically embody it in this kind of fucked up world that we live in. Mm-hmm. Um, but essentially one of our elders boiled it down really well to three things. Um, the way the Samurai Brotherhood operates, and I think successful men's group in general operates, is um, it's really a satsang. It's, it's a mm-hmm. truth gathering, right? It's um, yeah. the, the three pillars are men learning to speak the truth about their lives. Pillar number one. Pillar Mm. number two is learning, is men learning to listen to and for other men's truth. And then the third pillar is committing to creating a container where the first two pillars can take place consistently. Mm. So, you know, the, the container basically involves having a bunch of committed guys who are paying monthly dues and are committed to certain attendance protocols to meet together once a week for two to three hours um, in circle. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we have certain structures to the meeting, but basically it's, it's the, the bigger part of it is guys openly sharing about their lives, either just being witnessed in something that they want to express or seeking feedback or seeking support. Uh, or seeking accountability to get something done that they need, they know they need to get done in their lives. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, our our founder Phil likes to say it's it's not a therapy group. We're not therapists. Like mm-hmm. I'm, you know, I co-lead one of these these squads with my friend Ty. Um, mm-hmm. Whereas some guys amongst the brotherhood, maybe you know, counselors or therapists, whatnot. There's a, there's a handful here and there. Um, it's not a therapy group, but it is a therapeutic experience for men mm-hmm. to come together and and interact in this way. Mm-hmm. Um, and this the need for this stems from um, what people who've studied this or written about it um, have observed, which is in that. And you know, you you alluded to this a little bit, Russell, earlier about you know, hey, your dad might be there, but also a little bit absent. Mm -hmm. So, you know, human beings are really only meant to, you know, we have Dunbar's number. We're we're designed to socially be socially active in groups of, you know, tribes, villages of 120 or whatnot. Mm -hmm. And it used to be very natural for all the men to go off together and do things and all the women to stay together and do things. And due to the industrialization of society over the last century and a half or whatnot, that rite of passage of a, boy becoming a man a boy leaving the realm of the mother the feminine 
to join the realm of the masculine, to become an apprentice, to become a responsible part of the community, that initiation doesn't happen anymore because our society has been fractured by industrialization. Mm-hmm. So these days, <clears throat> and basically since you know most of the 20th century until now, um, that sort of, in, in general, we can say that boys are raised with a sense of masculinity that comes from women. Most mm. school teachers through grade school are women. Um, mm. And, you know, a lot of guys have experienced either an absent father, completely absent from the home, or a father who leaves the home to work, leaves, yeah, leaves the home to work, um, comes home tired at the end of the day with no energy really for his family mm-hmm. and um without any perhaps you know real deep heart connection to his work so whereas a son may you know at 13 14 previously have gone off with his father into the mines or into the trades or into the family business or whatnot that right. that happens a lot less uh and there's no, there are no actual rituals for men anymore or for boys anymore to be shifted into the world of men so in a way you can say what we're doing with these like so men's work is to overcome that lack of initiation and also what we call the farther wound which to a greater or lesser degree is what i've just described it's like this lack of connection to a father figure or a strong masculine a strong healthy masculine figure in our lives who can teach us by demonstration or directly what it is to be a responsible community serving man in this world Mm. um and and so that's that's kind of what we're trying to make up for in a way by coming together every week and you know because that hasn't happened men tend to be somewhat distrustful of each other because they haven't Mm -hmm. been through deep bonding rituals together Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, you might say that's different in, say, sports teams or military organizations, but even yeah. there, it's kind of not necessarily healthy. It's kind of more hazing versus initiation. Um, right. And it, and so it we can, can be quite healthy. I mean, it. it I, I feel very very strongly about team sports as being a place that that um, that has been deeply transformational for me mm-hmm. to participate in. Um, but I, I I didn't. I didn't mean to interrupt. I didn't, I'd never really experienced hazing. Um, What I, what I experienced was ritualized uh, violence. (laughs) And that was a rugby team. Yeah. That was fucking amazing. (laughs) That was the most fucking amazing thing I've ever experienced or been a part of. And, and it's still part of my life today that I still seek out and find football clubs where we can go and watch our, our ball thing together and if the ball thing goes well and then we systematically beat each other right you know, that's and like i've thrown a man into a wall <laughs> because something good happened right and that was fantastic and i and i can and i've not missed a weekend of that of that experience of um of the sport ball hmm. thing <laughs> just to say I've, it's really important to me to have that very guttural very violent very um conjoining collegial experience with other men and um 
that's why I went to the bar was to, you know, find a stranger and beat the shit out of him. You know, not in a friendly way, in a very friendly way, because we loved each other so much, (laughs) you know, not an Eagles fan, but a fucking Saints fan, you know, somebody (laughs) on my team, you know, that was really that's that's been an an it's a a weird thing to kind of go like and have very kind of feminine experiences with mostly females and very feminine men in Ashtanga yoga. Mm -hmm. And then I would secretly go off to the bar on Sunday morning where, you know, I could be this, you know, um, this other guy. I like it. (laughs) Yeah. So we we try to do that without the beating each other up and without the booze. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I would drink orange juice, but I would still beat these guys. Right. <laughs> I don't know. It's interesting because I think like it sounds like this the men's group and this gathering, it's you know, there used to maybe be more of a, a place for this when people like had a church community that they would go to mm-hmm. or in India where there was sort of like a guru kula or something and you know, boys would go and learn from a, a guru or somebody who was uh, you know like a pseudo father figure as well. Right. And yeah. Well, also I think in the, in the U S at least, or in North America, let's say um, at a certain point in the 20th century, there was a, an enormous percentage of adult men who were Freemasons mm-hmm. simply yeah, for that I reason was, of oh, like the coming man. together. They yeah. I was never, thinking nobody about that. ever knocked. Nobody ever asked me. I'm like, I'm still waiting <laughs> yeah, for, me the, for that. I have a friend here who got uh, invited to be a Freemason oh, in the city. Oh, I could ask him if he could invite you. I'd like you that. Because <laughs> he, he said yes. Okay, good. Yeah. Good for him. <laughs> you can go watch Stag and Snuff films and have a good time. Oh. <laughs> he said it's mostly old guys just sitting around drinking beer and chatting. <laughs> and then somebody gets the, the, the projector out. I don't think so. <laughs> I think you got to be up at the higher levels for that stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, that's like super interesting. So you're leading this men's group and it seems like you have a real calling. You have your own men's group that you lead in the same way. Okay, yeah. No. So what happened was, you know, I, I joined a squad uh, when I joined the community that was led by two guys who co-captained the thing. We use all this military terminology. Um, yeah. And then at a certain point, I think at about two and a half years in, um, you know, we, we've currently grown to over 500 members now, and that's even wow. with, um, and I've, I've spread beyond Vancouver. There's a big contingent growing in Australia, um, just because there was a guy here for a few years who moved back home and got it going on. Um, wow. But yeah, at wow. a certain point, you know, we were growing at a certain rate, and I also just saw the value of it and was like, yeah, man, this is this is something what something that I want to offer to people because I've got I get so much value from it and I also want to challenge myself to lead a group like this and so at a certain point there I think it was the start of 2019 um, a squad came up that was forming and uh, another friend of mine and I took it on he was in a different squad so we we left our respective squads to form a new one I mean it's it's essentially a group coaching program that's targeted to men Kind of, but there's not really any major agenda. Yeah. 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 Except to like support each other in your goals and to hear each other and exactly. Learn how to yeah. Communicate yeah. maybe. Yeah. yeah. And or just have that experience of just being with men. Because 
one one thing that really stood out to me when I first joined my squad was was I mean okay all of them apart from three were white but still <laughs> like just the they were people who I would not normally meet or hang out or spend time with otherwise right. you know I was there in my feminine yoga bubble drowning and um yeah feeling pretty isolated like most of my good friends had left the city by then and it was kind of just me and yeah so i I also needed connection and i welcomed it when i found it found it um but yeah we got everything from phds to nightclub bounces in our in our group you know and it was Mm -hmm. once you sat down and told some deep truths about yourselves and shared it openly and and um yeah laid yourself out like that you connect really really strongly you know Mm -hmm. and it might be people you don't like but you learn it's great you learn how to there's ways you can just get in each other's faces and get over it Mm -hmm. as you alluded to russell you know yes that's the other thing that you learn playing sports with other men is you get into a conflict somebody throws a ball people are punching each other and then you dust each other off uh, you dust yourself off and then (laughs) you get up and you keep playing that's what you're continuously taught in team sports is to, you know, once the conflict is over, keep playing, sort it out, keep playing, mm-hmm. get back, to, get back to the game. Yeah. There's no, there's stuff there where you're, you're suppressing hurt and rage. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, this, this sounds know. a little healthier. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I, it sounds like I, there's a lot more communication going on and like trying to hold space for people to actually but like. But the willingness <laughs> to let go of um, a conflict and then go back to the game is also healthy. Yeah. Sure. Uh-huh. It's like, and not just, you know, quit, not just take right. your ball and go home. Yeah, but to you know, like no, no, the guy was out. It's like, well, I don't think he was out. We was out. Like, you get into a little fight about it, and then you're like, okay, keep, let's look, come on, guys, let's go, let's keep playing, mm-hmm. right? And everybody just keeps playing. Yeah, There's that's, a, and that's you know, that's basically as the leader of the group, I'm not anyone special. I'm just like the referee. That's like, okay, guys, right. we're shutting this one down and moving on. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. <laughs> moving on yeah. to the next topic. Yeah. next guy. Next you know? topic. Next play. Yeah. One thing I was thinking of is the the self help group in The Handmaid's Tale towards the end of the <laughs> third season, when the self help group kind of um, metastasizes and evolves into this other thing where they 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 you know no spoilers but uh, they go on a murderous rampage. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And I thought, did that does that ever happen with you guys? Do you ever <laughs> find it going someplace that's un- that uncomfortable? Uh, hasn't happened yet. No, no. <laughs> But it sounds like there's some like debates and disagreements that go on. Yeah. So, um, what a, a lot of what's cha- uh, what a lot of what's encouraged in the group is challenge. You know, when I talked about the mm. whole guys learning how to speak their truth, it's not always easy for people, and some people want to hide. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we're all there to challenge each other when we're hiding or if we're bullshitting, whether it's bullshitting the group or bullshitting ourselves about how our mm-hmm. lives are going or what really needs to be done. Um, mm. So that element of, of challenging one another in a supportive way is a huge part of it. Wow. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. It's kind of yeah. like, whole, like it's healing. Like, yeah, it's kind of like, look, dude, you've been talking about this for six months. You haven't acted on it either fucking take the action or shut up and don't bring it here anymore. You know? Right. 
And it's, that it's sounds not very un- masculine. And it's not unkind. <laughs> it's just like, this is how it is, man. I'm just reflecting back to you how you've been, what you've been doing. And, you know, right. shit, like I'll you're get trying up to like, yeah, yeah, move people out of like uh, playing the victim and like take ownership for where they are in their lives and what's going on. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, you know, one of the, I, I said there's no curriculum to it, but we, there is, um, there's kind of like the code of the conscious warrior, which is what our, our founder, Phil Nisselberger wrote. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of, um, you know, the, those serve as great guidelines for us. So it's like, you know, be in integrity, basically <laughs> make right. your word good. Don't, don't do anything you're going to say you're going to, you know, don't basically be in integrity, make your word yeah. good. Um, Say what you're going to do and do what you say. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Be a good man, basically. Hmm. Yeah. Be be responsible for your life. Hmm. And is it, is it a day? I mean, I know you said there's people there that you normally wouldn't have connected with, but is it, there a lot of diversity like within the groups? Um, I mean, age-wise, they would definitely attract a lot of millennials. So a lot of late 20s and 30s guys in there. Um, less elders at this point, but still attracting more. Um, and then They're all with as, the Freemasons. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> They're really stuck in the past. Yeah. Um, We're at the pub. And then, you know, as, it's a, as racially, it's, it's, it's as diverse as Vancouver is, you know. At least main, mainstream yeah. Vancouver. Okay. Yeah, and that's is is the founder from Vancouver? Uh, he's from Montreal, actually. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, are these groups all over Canada then? They are now. Yeah, it started Vancouver centric, and then as people, you know, left the city for whatever reason and yeah. you know, moved across the country, then yeah, stuff stuff started to open up. We also um, one of our guys started an online division um, oh, wow. that's the guys that meet only online and the, the the numbers of those squads are capped so that you know you're not lost in a crowd on a screen right. Um, right but the goal of those squads is to you know in quite short order inspire some of the members to start something in person in their own town so that's that's definitely seated a few squads but yeah um we're definitely we're in victoria nanaimo calgary Mm-hmm. Um, Ottawa, Toronto, um, yeah, like I said, handful in Australia, and a whole. I think there's like over a dozen, maybe even fifteen online squads now. Mm. Wow, yeah. that's cool. incredible! And you're also doing a little bit of coaching as well. That's right. Yeah, about a year ago, I started training with a woman called Kate Stillman. Mm-hmm. I've heard of her. Um, yeah, she's um. She's a big voice in the Ayurvedic space, if you like. Um, mm-hmm. The white Ayurveda white space. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, my notes here say uh, <laughs> the the Dinacharya course. That is that what she's doing? Dinacharya. Dinacharya. Yeah, so, so Kate has she published a book a few years ago called Body Thrive, which is basically like a a mainstreamed version of uh, it basically walks people through dinacharya in 10 steps or 10 habits. Mm-hmm. And um, so she, she takes on, she takes on um, 
people who are interested in learning to teach that and coach people through that um, a few intakes a year. And I decided to take that up a year ago mm-hmm. and learn learn how to do that, learn the business model, and basically join her online community. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so far I've I have a small group that work with me, have been going with me since about November. And um we basically walk walk people through the the building of this daily routine um a few seasons a year. People join me for a year. Mm-hmm. And um but every quarter we invite new people into the group and kind of start all over again so that mm-hmm. you know the people who are already in there start to go a layer deeper. And uh, over the course of three or four seasons, you know, people really start, it really starts to just land automatically in people's, in people's days and their bodies to where they're doing it um, automatically, mm-hmm. if you like. And, uh, and I'm in the process now of sort of trying to adapt this kind of syllabus to working with men exclusively to get a kind of men's, mm-hmm. men-only version of the group going. Yeah, that sounds really cool. I mean, because, you know, whenever I think of Ayurveda in, in like the health and wellness space, I always feel like it's kind of... Um, You're going to attract a lot of women, are you? Yeah. <laughs> it's, 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 yeah, it's sort of given in a way that I feel, it, you know, tends to attract a lot of women. I don't know why. Maybe just because there's so many women in the health and wellness space. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But, you know, it's it isn't meant just for women. No, but yeah, all my clients except one are women, <laughs> right? and I am probably one of maybe half a dozen guys in like Kate's community of about three hundred people, I imagine. Right. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's you know, but that's how it was when I started teaching yoga, you know, and it yeah kind of remains to this day in a way. Yeah, um, it's kind of nice to be able to like bring something new to people, though that like to men if you know they're open to it Mm -hmm. yeah so my kind of you know one way one way and because it's dinacharya and not so much focused on what your dosha and what you should and shouldn't eat and how you should and shouldn't practice Mm -hmm. um there's a lot more focus on circadian rhythm biorhythm and and you know basically the rhythm of the day and the power of the sun and how Mm -hmm. it connects to making your body work and so a great reframe for men in that sense, and even Kate uses this, is like it's, you're rewilding yourself and your habits mm-hmm. by taking up an Ayurvedic routine mm-hmm. um, or the Ayurvedic routine because, you know, you really are starting to re, retune yourself into um, – the elements that actually do have a strong effect on the body and that the body is designed to be uh, or evolved to be in tune with versus mm-hmm. these artificial environments that we are living in all too often, right? Mm-hmm. Caged in. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, hmm. yeah that's so valuable. That's mm-hmm. really, that's awesome. It's so great to hear how you're expanding all that you're doing and offering outside of just the teaching Ashtanga Yoga Mysore style world. Yeah, thanks. It, it 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 felt needed, you know. I, I knew I needed to add something else, and you know, learn learn how to bring something else to my teaching as well by by mm-hmm. doing this. You know, it's definitely mm-hmm. a difference between teaching and coaching, and yeah. um, it's an important difference. And there should be a lot more training and coaching to be a yoga teacher. I feel. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Agreed. 
Yeah. What, what do you <laughs> consider to be the biggest differences? Harmony. Um, I mean, I think that in our teaching model, especially, you know, when you've been training in, you know, India or my source, say, as we all have, um, you know, it's a very top down approach. And, and it's very, like, this is the way you do it. And this is the right way. This is the wrong way. Mm -hmm. You know, it's very uh, pedantic, in a sense, that way, in that the teacher is telling you, you know, what to do and you're going to try and do it. Yeah. Uh, it's very sort of traditional teaching model. And, you know, with the coaching, it's always client centered, it's client led or student centered, student led. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> and you have already the belief that the student is, you know, creative, resourceful and whole and that they have all the answers and they already know what they need and and how to do the things they need to do. And so it's really about shining that light for them, you know, believing in them when, when they don't believe in themselves, seeing how you can be of service, how you can help and assist them in their journey. But the journey is theirs, and it's not you to tell them what they need to do or where they need to go next, you know. It's mm -hmm. really about being a guide on the side or helping them, you know, uncover these truths for themselves and not saying, oh, this is the way it is and this is what's true and that's not what's true, right? Yeah. yeah but it's, also, it's, it's also, it's you're, you're being a coach and so maybe you're a wellness coach or you're a, um, a yoga teaching coach, very different from being a psychotherapist addressing someone's uh, trauma. Yeah, no, it's, make that it's distinction. yeah, it's not, Definitely. it's not really about going into the, into their past or into their trauma or, you <clears> know, <throat> trying to, you know, provide a therapy in that sense. But I think as a Mysore teacher, you know, the best Mysore teachers are, are in that coaching relationship. Absolutely. You know, where, Dina, Dina Kingsburg, we had on the show recently, we talked about that, that yeah. there was something about her that addressed our, our core pattern. Yeah, and you ask a certain question, and this and it reveals something to the student, right? It uncovers a blind spot that they didn't see or didn't know about, and even yeah. the adjustments really should be about helping reveal blind spots, right? Things that mm -hmm. that maybe like you weren't aware of, and like all of a sudden, you know, someone dead passive areas that yeah. need adjustment. <laughs> Um, <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. I'll have to listen yeah. to that episode. Yeah. No, it just like wakes something up in you, right? And you're yeah. like, oh, right. I, I have this ability. I have this strength. I have this power. I can do it. Yeah. That's what the Mula Bunda adjustment was for. Uh, I knew you were going to go there. <laughs> we're going to cut that part God. <laughs> red flag. Red flag. <clears throat> well, Jeff, I, I'm just really grateful that you that you came on the show and you you talked about your experience and I know it may not be completely comfortable um, um, for you as a as an English bloke <laughs> you, you don't sound like one um, but I I just want to thank you again for your generosity of time and spirit and I and I hope that there are men out there and people out there that um, could I think they'd be well served to to work with you so thank you. Um, for for um, showing us your your way. Thanks so much, Russell. It's been a blast. I've had so much fun. It's been my absolute pleasure. I think 
blast could be something that we could say in like the, a blast. A blast. It's been a blast. It's been a blast. It's been a blast. No, well, yeah, we're just so grateful. Thank you for coming out of your cocoon, Jeff. Going out of the cave. Yeah, showing us all of your radiance and beautiful colors. Oh, you're too <laughs> kind. Uh, it's really good to reconnect with your harmony too. Thanks for yeah. uh, thanks for asking me on. It's, um, it's brilliant. Thanks for listening to this episode of Finding Harmony. With me, your host, Harmony Slater. You can find out more information on my website, harmonyslater.com. And I look forward to connecting with you again soon. Standing in eternity's shadow Watching the breaking waves There's a hard wind and the soil